And Heavenly Father, we praise you for your gracious provision to us. Lord, every good gift that we receive comes from your hand, and you are the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Lord, we thank you for, for the, these good gifts that you give us. We thank you, Lord, for the way that, that you dealt with Noah, and in the way that you dealt with Noah, we see the way that you deal with us. Lord, that, that you really are our Father, that you really do give us good things. Lord, I pray that as we consider this covenant that you made with Noah, that you would help us to see your provision for us. We pray that, that you would help us to respond with faith and obedience through the work of your Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I ask if you could please stand as we read our passage of Scripture for this morning. Um, Genesis 9, verses 1 to 17 I'm going to be focusing just on the, on the first seven verses uh, where, where God um, shows the provisions um, under this covenant. But let's read, we'll read the whole, the whole of this section, Genesis 9, verses 1 to 17. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. And to your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man, from his fellow man, I will require it, require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God created man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, and teem on the earth and multiply in it. And God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, these birds, the livestock, and every beast of the field with you, as many as came out of the ark. It's for every beast of the earth, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the, and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds... I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I've established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. And please be seated. On Friday, we gave Liam a gift his first bicycle. He had clearly outgrown his tricycle, and so it was time to move on to a bicycle. It was a, it's a Walmart bike, but it's, it's pretty cool. It has flame decals, and, and, and it's, so it's meant to be ridden really fast. And it has, it has training wheels. 
Now, he needs to get used to pedaling a two-wheeler before he takes the, the next step. But when the training wheels come off of Liam's bicycle, he's not going to be ready for a motorcycle. If a child turns 16 and gets his motorcycle license but, but drives poorly, harming several people and only barely sparing his own life, you aren't going to give your child a motorcycle as a gift, even if you have the means. You're going to give him something safer and something slower, like an old Volvo. Now, no offense to Volvo drivers, but, but Volvo drivers might have a reputation for, for driving poorly, but Volvos are much safer. They're much safer vehicles. I think that's part of the reason why, especially when I was a cyclist, I did a lot of cycling, that when I saw one of those old Volvo station wagons, my, the, I, would, I would go into, into alert mode. And, and I'd be aware, okay, there's a Volvo there. I didn't know what he was necessarily going to do. And because Volvos, if you're, if you're not really a safe driver, you tend to be drawn to something that's probably a safer vehicle. So if you're going to give your, your child a gift, you're going to give your child a gift that best fits the child's nature and ability. This morning, as we begin our look at God's covenant with Noah, we're going to see how God is faithful to give gifts according to man's nature and ability. And we're going to talk a lot more about this next week, but, but I want to briefly review the meaning of the word covenant. Heinrich Bullinger, who's really considered one of the fathers of, of covenant theology, said simply, a covenant signifies an agreement and promise. Ligon Duncan, expanding on this, defines covenant as a, a binding relationship with blessing and obligation. That the first covenant that God makes with man is in Genesis 2, 16 and 17, with the provision of the, of the trees in the garden for food, but with the prohibition not to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Theologians call this the covenant of works, and it's, it's called a covenant of works because in this covenant, your, your obedience, doing the works of the covenant, is what saves you. It's, it's do this and live. Disobey and die. And this is the case with Noah. He disobeyed, and so he would die. But immediately on the heels of the covenant of works, after the fall of man, God instituted the covenant of grace. And we see this in Genesis 3.15, where God declares that there would be, that he would make hostility between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And that the, the woman's offspring would have his heel bruised, but the head of the serpent would be crushed. And we know that this points to Jesus Christ. This is the, called the, the proto-euangelion, the promise of the gospel, the, the first hint of the gospel in the scriptures, the promise of, of Jesus, that, uh, that Jesus would have his heel bruised on the cross, but that he would crush Satan's head. This is the covenant of grace. 
It's a covenant of grace because in and under the covenant of grace, God upholds the obligations of the covenant. And God also takes the consequences for disobedience to the covenant. We're going to see more about that next week. But as we look here this morning with, with God, at God's dealings with Noah in Genesis 9, 1-7, we're seeing the beginnings of the, the confirmation of the covenant of grace, the confirmation of the covenant that God had already made with Adam, this covenant of, of grace, Genesis 3, 15. And so in this, we see, we see the way that, that God deals with, with the people of promise, with his elect people. We saw in the flood with the way, the way that God deals with the people of rejection of promise. But now it's, it's with the people of promise, with, with the elect, God's chosen people. And so in this, we see not just the way that God deals with Noah and, and with, with especially Shem, but we see the way God deals with us. So in Genesis 8.20, Noah, by God's grace, responded to God's grace in sparing him and his family and built an altar to sacrifice some of every clean animal and every clean bird. And the Lord responded to Noah's sacrifice and promised, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living thing or every living creature as I have done while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God's promise here, this enduring promise not to destroy the earth is a precursor to this covenant that we see here in, in Genesis 9, 1 to 17. So this morning, we're going to see the provisions of the covenant. And next week, Lord willing, we're going to see the confirmation of the covenant and the sign of the covenant. So again, this morning in verses 1 to 7, we see the provisions of the covenant. Now, I use that word provisions very intentionally because there, there, are, there are, are really two senses in, in which this word provision applies. The, the one is, is that God supplies, so God provides, and that it's, it's, a, it's, it's God's supplying of man with everything that he needs, and, and here also with the, the mandate to produce life. And, and this, this new element, this new, this new twist on the provision of, of food. But the second sense in which provision also applies here is that man also is given obligations, obligations to obey, including the, the prosecution for taking human life and, 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 the, prosecution, and, 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 and the prohibition against, against drinking the, the blood of a, of a living animal. And so here we see that these two senses of God's provision, God's supply God giving to man and God requiring something of man, requiring obligations of man. But when we think about this, remember this is a covenant of grace. It's, it's opposed to the covenant of works. Because in this covenant of grace, it, it's God who is, is doing it. So as John Murray says, 
the commandments which are appended, compliance with which on the part of Noah is indispensable to the blessing of preservation, do not in the least, hear this, do not in the least suggest mutuality of agreement. The appended requirements are simply extensions, applications, expressions of the grace intimated in the covenant. So what's Murray saying here? He's saying that Noah's obedience to these covenant obligations cannot save him. They cannot save him. He is saved by grace just as much as we are saved by grace. But the enjoyment of the blessings of the covenant are, are required, require obedience to his responsibilities under the covenant. This is not a mutual covenant. What we see happening here is that God is adapting the, the, this covenant to man's fallen nature. Now again, this is, this is not a change in the covenant of grace. This is the same covenant that God has already made with Adam, but, but the promises and the blessings that God had given to man prior to the fall in Genesis 1, verses 26 to 29, God is now here repeating them and adapting them to the wickedness of man's heart. So again, this, the, these important elements of, of the creation mandate of, of Genesis 1, 26 to 29, prior to the fall, the, the mandate to multiply, to have dominion, to be image bearers of God are reiterated. But sin has now corrupted the world, so those blessings are, are now recast. As is God's provision of food. Please turn with me for a moment to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 29. Genesis 1, 26 to 29. What do you see that God has done for man here? We see, first of all, that, that, that um, God is made, or that man is made in the image of God in, in 26 and 27. We, we also see that that man has been given dominion over the animals. We see this uh, in, uh, in 26 and again in 28. We also see that, we also see that man has, has been given, uh, we see that man is also given uh, food, in, in fact, in the form of, of green plants. We see this in, in verse 29. And so, so in this passage, you, you, you see what, what God has promised to man, but that is prior to the fall. And so now, knowing the wickedness that is in man's heart in, after the, the fall, after the flood in, in Genesis 9, we see a repetition of, of these promises, but they are now adapted. They're now changed to the new circumstances. Man has been, been blessed with, 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 with being made in the image of God and having dominion over the animals and, and is, is blessed with being able to be fruitful and multiply and, and is given plants for food, but, but sin corrupted all of that. The image of God is, is effaced, it's damaged, it's deformed. Sin now reigns in man's heart. And so then in Genesis 6, 2,000 years after the, that first creation week, we, we see God's assessment of man. That every intention of the thoughts of man's heart is only evil continually. 
So God determines to blot man from the face of the earth, and so he sends a global flood to wipe out every human being on the planet, every human being except for Noah and his family. Why? Not because Noah was, was righteous in and of himself, but because God had determined by, by his sovereign grace to elect Noah. God had determined to have favor on Noah. That's the same word as, as, as grace. God had grace upon Noah. And, and all, that, that, all the righteousness that, that Noah uh, um, demonstrated, all the obedience in his life was, was a product of God's grace. We read about this in, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. It was, it was by faith that Noah obeyed. And so now as we arrive in Genesis 9, the flood has wiped sin from the face of the earth. But it has not wiped sin from the heart of man. So again, here we see God repeating to Noah his, and to his sons, his, his creation provisions, that of multiplication, of having dominion, of being an image bearer, as well as the provision of food. But again, they're modified to life after the fall. They are adapted to man's wickedness. So now as we arrive in Genesis 9, the, the flood has wiped sin away, but it still abides in the heart of man. So we see, we see, first of all, a, a new development here is as God blesses Noah, notice it's as his sons. Now for the first time we see God speaking not just to Noah, but also to his sons. And we'll see the way that that, that, that plays out, especially uh, in, in, in a few weeks as we look at, 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 at God's dealings with, with Noah's sons. And as we look in the, the, next, the next Toledot, this next section, the generations of Noah's sons, we're going to see how that progresses. And so here we see God continuing his blessing on the line of Seth, the line of promise. And so the first, the first provision that we see here is the blessing of multiplication. Verse, again, verse one, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now this is repeated if you look down in verse seven, forming what's, what's known as an inclusio. An inclusio is, a, is a, a repetition meant to emphasize a particular point that God is making, and, and it's also meant to form brackets to show that, that there's a, a, this, by, by saying the thought and then repeating the thought a little bit later, it's meant to show that this, this, this passage is meant to go together as a, as a cohesive unit. And so when, you, when you're studying your scriptures and you see that, see something at the beginning and then several verses later repeated, it's, it's there for emphasis, but it's also there to, to, to show you how that whole section fits together in your Bible. So again, so, so God is blessing Noah and his sons with the blessing of procreation. In this we see that, that children are evidence of the Lord's creation blessing. And this is, this is a, a, an almost universal blessing. As the, the natural way is, is for, for people to, 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 to come together in, in, in marriage and then to have children. And in some cases, there, there's a, 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 the severe trial of, of being unable to have children is, is a very difficult burden for people to carry. We, we understand that as Christians. And even in the world, 
there's a sense in this. But what is, is the, the message that, that we're pretty regularly being fed from our culture? Not that children are, are a blessing, but that children are a burden. Not that children are, are a privilege, but that they're a problem. And, and you'll see that either explicitly in things that are said or, or, or implicitly in the messages of, of, of so much of the media that, that we're being bombarded with on a day by day. In the modern world, people aren't uh, nearly as, as uh, they're not really filling the earth and multiplying, they're actually doing the reverse. In Canada alone, there's 100,000 babies killed every single year. Over a million in the U.S., 13 million in China. Over 1.5 billion in the world since 1980. People are being fed the lie that, that overpopulation is one of the biggest problems on the planet. But this concept of, of overpopulation, the problem of overpopulation is, is actually a pagan notion. We've talked repeatedly about the Atrahasis flood and, and the parallels that are there between the Atrahasis flood and the, the, the pagan Atrahasis flood and, the, and the, the narrative of Noah. Well, one of the interesting uh, and sharp distinctions between those two epics is, is that in the Atrahasis flood epic, overpopulation of the earth leads to population control by the gods who send demons to kill unborn children. Think about it. This is, this is, is really, they wouldn't use the same terminology, but, but this is really the thinking that is infiltrated and it is feeding our culture. In the biblical narrative, it's exactly the opposite. Children are a blessing. And men and women are to fill the earth with them. They are to raise children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And society is to, to make the protection of children, of children among the highest of responsibilities. Having two children and, and one on the way, Jane is, is already getting looks when she's out shopping and things saying, oh, oh you're one of those families. You're one of those, those, those people who believe in, in lots of children. Well, Lord willing, we're not done yet. But I, I do have concerns about the world that, that our children are being born into. But I pray that by God's grace, our children and the children of this church will come to faith and that there will be light for the gospel in this dark world. That they will be part of the, of the solution to the problem. They'll make a difference for Christ. I wonder if, if overpopulation is, is such a problem, why is the birth rate in Canada only 1.6 per woman? Only 1.6. If it wasn't for immigration, our, our population in this country would be falling drastically. And it's true in, in many cases around the developed world. We might be saying, well, well what about Africa? Well, it's true that in, in places there, there are high birth rates in Africa, but, but over, overpopulation is not the problem. The Lord has provided enough food on our planet for everyone, but greed and waste are the problem. And this comes from a, a corrupt understanding of and a, and a corrupt application of man's dominion on the planet. And with that, let's look at verse 2. We consider this, this idea of dominion. 
The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. To your hand they are delivered. So in this we see that God is, is still providing dominion over the animals, yet not as we saw in Genesis 1. What, what, what was a blessing it, it now has, has additional challenges in, in the hostile environment of the post-flood world. See, animals fearing people, this is, this is almost a, like a reign of terror. Most animals, if you, if you are, are aggressive with, with an animal, most animals will run away. But where that's not the case, we've been given tools in order to subdue them. But this, this too has been corrupted. We, we are to have dominion, we are not to destroy. We are to be stewards of the planet. Proverbs 12.10 says that whoever is righteous has regard for the life of his beast, but the mercy of the wicked is cruel. When we, when we treat animals with, with dignity as, as creatures made by God, we are fulfilling this, what, what God intended for us to, as, to, as having dominion. As we move now into verse 3, again we see the adaptation of God's provision from Genesis 1. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. So here we see there is, is both continuity and discontinuity. Remember in Genesis 1.29, God gives, gives man plants for food. Man, man was given dominion over the animals, but man was a vegetarian. Man didn't eat the animals. Yes, they were used for, for a covering in Genesis 3, and yes, they're used for sacrifice in Genesis 4 and 6, but they were not given for food until here. So now the, now the, the dominion of man has dreadful consequences for the animals. And this deteriorated condition of the fundamentally fallen post-flood world is again a stark contrast from, from God's good creation in Genesis 1. Now I enjoy barbecuing meat. We're going to have a barbecue here this evening. I was talking with the Shubas on, on Friday evening that if, if, I, if, if I was on death row and was given a last meal, for me it would be a toss-up between, between fajitas and ribs. But, but sometimes, as I sit down to eat a rack of ribs, I think about, wow, these are the ribs of an animal. The, the, this was once the, the rib cage of an animal that protected its, its vital organs. And here I am eating it. I don't think about it for too long as I, as I tuck in. But, but we need to realize what's happening here. And, and this is part of God's good provision we see in Genesis chapter 9. And so as I discussed on, on Friday, with the, with the, as I talked about the children on Friday, when in, in cleaning the fish, I was thinking about, about the fact that, that this was a, was a living animal. And, and I said, thank you to the Lord for giving me this animal for food. We need to realize, though, that this is not always the, the way it was, nor is this always the way it will be. I believe that, it, that in the new heavens and the new earth, we're going to be vegetarians once again. And some of you might be gasping at that, but, but you won't miss meat. 
at the marriage supper of the Lamb. You won't miss it. So now in verse four, we, we see the, the other form of provision. The obligation for, 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 diso- for, the obligation for obedience. This is t- to obey God's prohibition. God said, I give you everything, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. This pattern is the same as, as what we saw in, in Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17. God's, God's generous provision of every tree of the garden, except for the one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can eat the fruit from all those other trees, but the fruit from that one tree you must not eat. Well, now the provision of, of every moving thing includes the prohibition, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, the blood. And so restricting the, the consumption of an animal's lifeblood meant forbidding the eating of an animal while it was still alive. This, this command is, is repeated and amplified in God's covenant with Moses. People were commanded to, to drain the blood from a slain animal in, in Deuteronomy 12, verses 23 and 24. Only be sure that you do not eat the blood, for the, the blood is the life, and you shall not eat the life with its flesh. You shall not eat it. You shall pour it on the earth like water. This was quite different from the, the surrounding nations where, where pagans often drank blood in order to, 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 to in an attempt to, to gain power from the life force of that animal. So here we see that animal life, although given to man as food, is valuable in the eyes of God. The living creature was to be cared for, not abused. So Kenneth Matthews says that disregard for the gift of life was an affront to the giver of life, for the life was deemed good as a creation edict. And so this, this provision in the, in this, here in this covenant prepared men to appreciate the sacrifice of blood in, in, the, um, in the covenant that God makes with, with Moses. We, we'll see it first in, in form with, with God's covenant with, with Abraham, and then we'll see it amplified and, and expanded in the covenant that God makes with, with Moses. This is all iterations of the covenant of grace. Leviticus 17, verses 11 and 12. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and as I have given it to you on the altar to make an atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Therefore I have said to the people of Israel, no person among you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. So this, this prohibition against drinking blood here in, in Deuteronomy, rather here in, in Genesis, um, you can see in the original language is, is meant to be is, is presented in the strongest of terms. It's meant to be permanently binding. You can see this in, in Acts 15 verses 20 and 29. If you'll turn with me there in your Bibles to um, Acts chapter 15. Again, first uh, in verse 20. This is the Jerusalem Council when with Gentiles and, and Jews in the church, they're, they're trying to determine what, what of the, the ceremonial laws were meant to be binding on Jewish believers. And look here at verse, or on Gentile believers, but look at verse 20. 
We'll go to verse 20. But my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled, notice this, and from blood. Now down in verse 29. Again, this is repeated, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood, what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So this, this, this prohibition against, against consuming blood was, was not just for Noah. This is a lasting covenant. And so I'm sorry to tell you that blood pudding with its four cups of pig blood is, is off the menu. It's still off the menu. I'm sorry if you like, if you, if you like blood pudding. I don't know why you would, but, but, but my understanding is here that you should not eat it. This is, a, this is also in the, the New Testament because he's, he's appealing to the, the, the covenant that God has made with Noah. With Noah, this is not just a Jewish thing. This is for all people. So now on the topic of blood, we see this final aspect of the original creation provision now adapted to man's wickedness after the fall. And it deals with man in God's image. Verses five and six. Now, we've been talking about the lifeblood of animals, but now, and for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. So this is the second prohibition, and, it, and it's also centered on blood. Centered on blood. But again, this time it's man's blood. This is a prohibition against taking human life. It includes people killing people and animals ki- killing people. It upholds the sanctity of human life. Now, the words fellow man that are, are used in verse 5 in, in modern translations actually obscure the double entendre that, that's, that, that's, that's meant to point back to the first murder. Cain's murder of his brother Abel. Fellow man is actually translated, it's, well, it's, the best translation is, is brother. It's brother. And so all murder is a form of fratricide. Of course, murder w- was wrong prior to this commandment. Cain could not, could not have pled innocence of the law when he killed his brother or ignorance of the law when he killed his brother Abel. He couldn't have said, I didn't know it was wrong. When I did it, it was, it was wrong before God made this, this, this covenant with Noah. Murder was always wrong and murder will always be wrong. And death is the penalty for killing a man. Whether committed by a man or an animal, murder warrants the death penalty. Murder warrants the death penalty. And God requires it from every beast and from every man. It's repeated here, from his fellow man, I will require it, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. So, so human life, when taken either by an animal or by a fellow human, requires the death of the offender. This principle of, the principle of jurisprudence known as, as, as lex talionis, an eye for an eye, me- means that the punishment must fit the crime. 
And the value of human life includes unborn children, as we see in Exodus 21-23, where the death of a child in the womb warrants the death of the offender. And again, this prohibition goes into the New Testament as well. Turn, please, in your Bible to Romans chapter 13. Romans 13. And here we see that this is talking about, Paul's talking about, about submission to the authorities. It says that the state is given the power of the sword. The power of the sword. And so when we, when we think about, about uh, verse 4, for he is God's servant for your good, but if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Friends, the the death penalty is a requirement of God's law. It's a requirement of God's law. Because murder is an offense against God. It's, It's capital punishment. It is the state's responsibility. But the removal of the death penalty in this country is an evidence of disregard for the sanctity of human life, even as we see abortion and euthanasia as evidence of disdain for the sanctity of life. It's also a disregard for God. It is God who requires a reckoning. And then we see in verse 6, at the end of the verse, why? Because man is made in the image of God. Man is made in the image of God. So any, any assault on man is an assault against God. And murder requires the strongest of consequences. Again, this is God's provision in creation, repeated and adapted in God's covenant with Noah. Here we see, remember back in in 126 and 27, man made in the image of God, and now repeated in Genesis 9, 6, we see we see that man is, is still in the image of God. Even though this, this image has been corrupted by sin, it's still there. You are still made in the image of God. Your, your value as a human being comes from the fact that you are made in the image of God. And the way that you treat people around you is, is affected and is, is, is augmented by the fact that they are made in the image of God. And so when you see the people around you, the people in your life, the people that you so easily sin against, these are fellow image bearers. And it requires a, 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 the, them to be treated in the, the highest of regards. So murder is not an offense ultimately against society. It's not an offense ultimately against, against the victim's loved ones or, nor even the victim himself. Murder is an offense against God. There was a man I was trying to minister to when I lived in Toronto who had committed murder many years prior. I'll call him Mike. And Mike knew that he had committed a, a grievous offense against God, and, and Mike was consumed by guilt. He had gone to prison, but, but he had been convicted of a lesser sentence, of, uh, only of, of manslaughter, when he knew that, that he had committed 
first degree murder, that, that he had set out to kill this man. It was cold-blooded murder. And so because he had, in, in one sense, gotten away with it, he felt even more guilty. He was being destroyed by the inside out. But he was also being destroyed from the outside in as, as he ran to alcohol for comfort. But no alcohol from the liquor store would suffice for Mike. Mike drank rubbing alcohol. And I didn't know it, but at that point, but I assumed that the, the water bottle that he always carried with him was filled with water. But it wasn't. It was full of rubbing alcohol. He, he, would, he, would, he would drink several ounces each morning before he even got out of bed. He had to drink several ounces just to feel normal. Remember seeing Mike literally blind drunk. He was so drunk on rubbing alcohol that he couldn't even see me. He recognized my voice. I was able to, to help him a little bit, but, but he couldn't see a thing. But Mike's blindness went far deeper. Mike couldn't see the gospel. I tried to explain to him that the blood of Christ, the blood of Christ was sufficient to wash away his sin, even the sin of murder. I spoke to him of the mercy of God on, on men like, like Moses and King David and the Apostle Paul, all of whom were murderers. But he couldn't see it. He objectively comprehended the facts of the gospel. But he couldn't apprehend the gospel for himself. He couldn't apprehend Jesus for himself. I really tried to help Mike. I, I would call him and visit him. I, I even took him to rehab, but, but he only lasted a few hours at rehab because uh, in detox under the withdrawal symptoms, he was seeing spiders crawling down the walls. I remember so well seeing Mike crying as I was about to move back to BC. As I realized I'll probably never see him again in his life. I don't know what happened to Mike. And I won't know what happened to Mike until, until that day, until the, the day of, of Christ's return. And I, and I wonder, I, I know that, that I should have done more. But God's grace was sufficient for Mike. Maybe you're here wondering this morning, is, is God's grace sufficient for me? Remember. Remember the power of the blood of Jesus. There is no sin there is no sin that is too heinous that you cannot be forgiven of if you flee to Christ. Maybe you're sitting here thinking, well, I've never committed murder. 
I've never killed anyone. Well, Mike was poor and wretched. Mike saw spiders that weren't there. Mike was sometimes literally blind drunk. But Mike's greatest blindness was that he could not see the reality of his sin and that it was ultimately against God and he could not see that God had provided for him. That the blood of Jesus was able to free him from his debt of sin. And since he did see the violence of murder, but he did not fully understand the grace of God, the provision of Jesus Christ. And again, you're probably sitting here thinking, well, well, I, I know how bad murder is. I know, I, I believe this passage that it deserves the death penalty. But you need to understand that you too are a murderer. That you too are guilty of murdering people made in the image of God. Turn with me in your Bible, please, to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, in the, the greatest sermon that has ever been preached, Matthew 5, 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus is saying that, that whenever we are, are sinfully angry, whenever we, we are insulting of people, we are committing murder. This is the murder of someone who is made in the image of God. But friends, if the blood of Jesus Christ was sufficient to cleanse Moses and King David and the Apostle Paul, it is sufficient to cleanse you. God's blood is efficient and sufficient The flood wiped sin off the face of the earth, but it could not wipe sin from the heart of man. Prior to the flood, the earth had been filled with violence. This repetition of the provision to be fruitful and multiply and to increase greatly on the earth and, and multiply in it in verse 7 is a sharp contrast with verse 6. Noah and his sons were to produce human life, not to take it. Yet as man increased on the earth, again the violence would return. But this command puts a check on that. It's a curb against murder. God's law, the first use of God's law, is a curb against sin. This law was a curb against sin on the earth, but it was powerless to stop murder. It was powerless. It's powerless to stop the murder that's in your heart as well. The flood couldn't do it. The law couldn't do it. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. 
what can make me whole again, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Free, flee to the blood of Christ for forgiveness. Flee to the blood of Jesus, the covenant of grace in his blood. As he bore the penalty of death for your murder and my murder. Jesus was killed because of your sin and my sin. Flee to him for forgiveness, to this covenant, this covenant of grace. For this covenant that that God had made with Adam and then with Noah and then with Abraham and then with Moses and then with David are all pointing to the new covenant in Christ's blood. Again from Heinrich Bullinger. He said this covenant is one covenant which first begun with Adam was afterward renewed with Noah, more plain with Abraham, put in writing by Moses, and lastly established and confirmed by Christ. This covenant of grace expands and escalates to the new covenant in Christ's blood. Calvin said similarly, the covenant of all the fathers is so far from differing substantially with ours that it is the very same. Only the administration varies. Calvin went on to say, the Lord has always covenanted thus with his servants. I will be to you a God and you shall be to me a people. So as the people of God lay hold of the covenant of grace, do not listen to the accusations that come from Satan or the accusations that come from your flesh that say you are too wicked to be forgiven. That is only a lie that keeps you in sin. God's grace is sufficient. Lay hold of God through the blood of Christ. Through the blood of Christ, you are a child of God. Let's pray together. merciful God. Lord, we understand to to a small degree what we deserve, that we deserve eternal separation from you in hell. All of us. Lord, we also understand to a degree that you have provided salvation for us in none other. You have provided salvation for us in Jesus Christ for there's no other name, no other false God, no other worldly pleasure that can bring us reconciliation with the holy God. Lord, I pray that you would help us, all of us, to lay hold of this covenant of grace, to lay hold of Christ for the glory of your name and for the building of your church. Amen.